0: You are now listening to the January 21st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Psalms, This is My Song, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Psalms, This is My Song.
1: Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministry listeners. This is Terry with Psalms, This is My Song a time in which we confess our hearts to the Lord. We know very well about what Jesus said about how we cannot serve God and wealth at the same time. But as we live in the world, we find ourselves looking at the world and our sights apart from the Lord. And when our sights are fixed on people around us, for example, those who are wealthy and rich, our hearts are stirred and become worried. We become envious of those who can buy bigger houses better cars, and prettier clothes without having a second thought, and those who can buy expensive things for their children without any worries. Then some of us may think, all of them are working so hard to become wealthy and rich. Shouldn't I be working hard to make more money? I am living my life trusting the Lord and giving my life to Him, but maybe that is a foolish thing to do. I am not saying that we should not make money. We need money to live in this world and we must work for the things to sustain our lives. Paul taught in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that if anyone is not willing to work, neither should he eat. Also, he said, be diligent and work hard. He also said in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. The reason Christians should work hard is not only for their own living, but to help other brothers and sisters in need. That is why I did not mean to not work or to not make money. I am trying to say that we must know and understand why we have to work and why we have to make money. Psalm chapter 49 that we are going to share today is written by a descendant of Korah. The psalm describes how faithful followers of God may struggle and have feelings of despair when they see the wicked, especially those who rely on their wealth, seemingly have more success in this life while God's people are living lives of suffering and tribulation. But the writer of the psalm encourages us to focus our sights on the everlasting thing that is waiting for us after our death. The writer talked about what we ought to look forward to in verses eleven to sixteen. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, but man and his pomp will not endure; he is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish, and of those after them who approve their words. Sila. As sheep they are appointed for Shoal, dead shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for shoal to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Shoal, for he will receive me. Selah Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. How was it? Did you feel the comfort from these words of God? Please do not despair, envy, or feel worthless because people around you look like they are living better lives. We have God who saved us from the authority of death and shoal. We will live as servants of the Lord in this world and we will see the Lord's face once we resurrect after our death. So when you are tempted to worry about wicked men who are wealthy and powerful, I hope you'll be able to live with the hope that those of us who know the Lord will never perish, but live with the Lord forever. We will conclude today's psalm, This is My Song, by reading Psalm chapter 49. Hear this, all peoples! Give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surround me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. No man can, by any means, redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lambs after their own names. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish, and of those after them who approve their words. Selah As sheep they are appointed for shoal. that shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. And their form shall be for shoal to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of shoal, for he will receive me. Sila. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish.
2: to your majesty cause I'm your
3: beloved your creation and you love me
2: as I am you call me chosen creation and you love me as I am. You call me chosen for your kingdom, unashamed to call.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Milter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is reverent worship. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill.
4: Now, as I mentioned last week, Many feel that Protestant churches have become irreverent. And I think one of the main reasons that that has happened is because we have adopted a whatever it takes mentality. If it grows the church, so be it. If it's practical and it works, let's do it. So we have put being practical above being biblical. If it practically grows the church, even though if it's not biblical, let's just do it because that'll attract people and make us seem cool and hip and all the other things. But we never, ever want to do what's practical above biblical because when we are being practical and not biblical, there's no reverence, there's no awe that we are giving to the Lord in that moment. Now, admittedly, when this topic comes up, and specifically when we talk about church, church worship, it's, it's hard to navigate that. I mentioned last week, just because something looks irreverent doesn't mean that it necessarily is. Jesus was the most reverent person to ever walk the face of the planet, yet he often did things that looked irreverent to those around him. So we want to be careful that we don't walk around with a judgmental spirit. I have to be careful of that. I don't want to go around judging other churches because they could judge us. But the important thing is, is I can't control what's going on out there, but we can control what goes on in here. Amen? So we want to make sure that when we come before the Lord, we're always coming with a reverent heart. But let's set corporate worship, what we're doing here, aside for just a minute. The reality is the Bible says our entire lives are to be lived in reverent worship before the Lord. Let me take you to a couple of verses uh, in the scriptures that highlight this fact. These aren't going to be our main passages. I'll, I'll take us to a main passage in just a bit. But let me introduce a few verses. Hebrews 13, 15, great verse. Through him, let us continually offer up sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We don't want to just acknowledge his name and sing his praises when we're at church. We want to do it when we're in fries and when we're at Costco and when we're teeing off the first hole and when we slice out of bounds and it goes over the fence and hits someone's house, we want to praise his name even then, right? Amen. Do I hear an amen? I know you golfers. It's tough to do that, right? So we want to constantly be praising his name. Let the, f- the fruit of our lips, let it just be constant praise to him. Peter said it this way, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Now listen to this, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Folks, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. If you're a believer here today, if you're watching online and you're a believer, you're not just anyone. You are a born-again believer. You are a priest in the kingdom of God. And that's why I say every building you enter, every threshold you cross, every conversation you find yourself in, that place is sanctified by your presence. And by sanctified, I simply mean it's set apart because a priest is now present in the building. A priest is now present in the conversation. A priest is now present in the room that you happen to be standing in. So remember who you are. You are a priesthood of believers that are to sing God's praises and offer acceptable uh, sacrifices to him wherever you go. And, that, and the people are blessed when you walk into the room because of that. And then we just read this in, in worship today, but let me read it again. This is Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Now listen to this. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I love that reverence and awe right there. By the way, that word awe right there, it carries the idea of being bashful. That's what that can mean. It's almost like when we come before the Lord, we're bashful. Like, I don't even belong to be here, Lord. You're so glorious, and I'm nothing, Lord. And I come before you. Oh, my goodness. That's kind of the, the idea behind it. That's the goal of the believer, folks. That is the goal of the believer, that we offer acceptable worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week, wherever we are, that we are constantly singing God's praises. Now, you know what all these verses imply? What these verses imply, there is this, that there is a type of worship that is unacceptable to God. There is a type of worship that is not acceptable. And that is a principle I think has been lost on the Protestant church in particular. And this, by the way, of un- this idea of unacceptable worship, it's all throughout the Bible. You see it everywhere. Let me give you a couple of examples. Early, you can't even get it out of the book of Genesis. Right at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 4, we see unacceptable worship being offered to the Lord. Church, hear the word of God today. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit Now, there has been endless debate as to why God didn't have regard for Cain's offering. What was unacceptable about it? You can debate that till you're blue in the face. The fact is this it was unacceptable. There was something about it that God didn't accept, which means that there is a type of worship or an attitude in worship, whatever you want to call it. There's a type of worship and an attitude in worship that God is looking for in those who come to worship. Two brothers, one brings a good offering. One brings a bad offering. Now, let me, t- let me take you to two other brothers, both who brought a bad offering. This is found in the book of Leviticus. Their brother, the brothers, Nahab and Abihu, listen to this. Now, Nad- they were priests. They were sons of Aaron, right? So they're priests they, and their dad is Aaron. They should know better than what they just did. Listen to this. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And fire came out, of, out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, now listen to this, folks. This is critical. If you want to know what God's looking for when, when you come to worship him, this is what he's looking for. Among those who are near or who draw near to me, I will be sanctified. And before the people, I will be glorified. And, this is, and because, when Moses says that to Aaron, it says, and Aaron held his peace because he knew that Moses was right. His sons had done something wrong. Now there's debate about what they did wrong. What exactly did these two guys do wrong? Well, they were priests. What did they do? Well, it says they offered unauthorized fire. It can also be translated strange fire. They brought something strange before the Lord that he had not commanded them. Some theologians have suggested instead of bringing fire from the brazen altar, as they should, they got their fire from some other source. Hey, there's fire here. Let's not go over there to where we should get it. It's more practical to get it here. So let's just get it from here and do that. And like I said, whenever we're, and if that's the case, whenever, being, whenever we're being practical instead of biblical, we're not being reverent. Amen. We never want to do what's practical, even if it seems to be easier, more convenient. It makes more sense. It seems to be more successful. It seems to have better results. If it's practical but not biblical, we're not doing it. Amen? And folks, that's not just in corporate worship. That applies in our life. We don't take shortcuts in the Christian faith. Just because some, every, the world's doing this and it seems more practical or whatever, we don't do that if it's not biblical. Practical over biblical is never reverent. Others have suggested these two guys were drunk. These two brothers were drunk. And the reason I say that is, let me read a little bit later in this same passage. Listen to this. It's it's not a little bit later, it's right after this. The Lord spoke to Aaron. So his sons die, and then God comes to Aaron and has some words for him. And here's what he says to Aaron. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. That's why theologians think that these two guys had been drinking. And then on top of that, because they were drunk, maybe they made a poor decision and they got fire from a place that they should. They should have got it from the brazen altar. They didn't. They got it from somewhere else and they offered that. Because look at what it says next. Um, uh, it shall be a statute forever throughout, the gen- throughout your generations. And here's, here's where they fail to distinguish. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So what theologians think is that these guys might have been drinking. They, were, they made a, a, an error. They failed to distinguish between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. They went and got fire from an unauthorized place. It may have been practical. It may have been more convenient. Whatever it was, they took it before the Lord. They thought, hey, I'm worshiping the Lord. That's all he cares about is that I worship him. Oh, really? It matters. The heart that we bring before the Lord, the motives that we bring before the Lord, how we worship God matters. Now you would think that with stories like this in the Bible, Cain and Abel, Nahab and Abihu, with stories like this, that later generation of Israelites would wise up and figure out, Hey, we should, it matters how we worship God, but they don't fast forward a thousand years from this time. And this is right. It's about 400 years before Christ comes. So we're, we're that close to Christ. And the Israelites had just come back from their Babylonian captivity. They were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They were sent there because of their idolatry and their failure to worship God in the right way. They go for 70 years of exile. They come back and you think, we're back from exile. We're not going to make the same mistake. We're going to worship God in spirit and truth, right? We're going to do it right. If it were only that easy. Church, hear the word of God. This is the priests of Israel after the Babylonian exile. A son, this is God talking to them. A son honors his father. And the servant, his master, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon the altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And, you offer, and when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. So in this case, it's crystal clear. In all the other cases, we can debate about why the offering was bad. But in this case, there's no debate. The priests weren't bringing the best sacrifices. They weren't even bringing mediocre sacrifices. They were bringing the worst sacrifices that they could offer God, as if he wouldn't notice or care. God, I'll just give you the worst. As my offering, This too shows an incredible lack of reverence amongst the priests of Israel, no less. Now, as a way to shame them, and this is important, look at what God says at the very end. Present that to your governor. Will he accept or show you favor? You know what God is saying to them? He's saying, if you went to your governor, you wouldn't dare do that to him, but you're doing it to me. And here's why that's important for you and me. Everybody get this. The minute we as God's children are better at showing reverence to men over God, we're in huge trouble. We do not fear men more than God, and we do not show reverence to men that belongs to God. Amen? And that's really, you want to know what reverent worship is, starts with? It starts with knowing who's in the right place. Man is down here. God is up here always. 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 God is enthroned, we worship him, we come before him with fear and trembling, not the rulers of this world, not the people of this world. If you would go before a governor and show some honor, which you would be wise in doing, how much more should we do that when we come before the Lord of hosts? Now, let me give you a couple of examples from the New Testament. These were just a couple of examples of bad worship in the Old Testament. Here's a couple from the New Testament. This one you probably know. It's Ananias and Sapphira. It's in Acts chapter 5. Now, this is important, and I'm going to set some of you free here, so this is going to be good news for some of you. One of the burdens that pastors and churches often place on people is with regard to giving. You've got to give 10%, okay? You often hear stuff like that. The New Testament is crystal clear. When it comes to giving, it's between you and the Lord second uh, corinthians 9 6 and 7 each man should determine in his own heart what he wants to give and give cheerfully and joyfully so give two percent give one percent do whatever you want it's between you and the lord it's no one else's business amen i say that to you because i don't want people putting false burdens on you when it comes to giving but the reason i tell you that is the passage i'm going to show you is a perfect example of a man who had the freedom to do whatever he did wanted to do but he lied he lied and that's where the offense comes in so listen to this but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So they sold a piece of property and they were gonna distribute it to the church as an act of worship. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the idea is he sold the land and it was probably known what he got the, what the price was, like he got maybe $10,000 or, or whatever. But what he, what, whatever he got for it, he lied in what he said, what he gave. And then Peter says this in verse three. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Was it it wrong to hold back part of it for himself? No, not necessarily. Listen to what verse four says. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? The, the, The offense was that you lied. The offense was that you lied. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped wrapped him up and carried him out to be buried. And if you keep reading, of course, Sapphira comes in. She continues the lie and she dies as a result. Now, here's the deal. This is where it gets interesting. Not with this story, but here's where it gets interesting for you and me. It's not just individuals that can act irreverently. Entire churches can do it. Entire churches can do it. And we see this in the New Testament specifically with the church at Corinth. Listen to this. This is what Paul writes. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. Whoops. So here's the deal. We think, well, like with Cain... Or with Nadab and Abihu, if I bring an offering to the Lord, surely it's acceptable to him because I'm bringing something to him, right? Not necessarily. Or you think, well, we're gathering as a church. Surely what we're going to do here is going to be honoring to the Lord. Not necessarily. Just because you're doing something religious in the name of the Lord or for the Lord doesn't mean it's acceptable to the Lord. That's the key. And that is what I think has been lost on the Protestant church in the last 30 years with the whole church growth movement and everything else we've tried to do to grow grow big and look hip and look all this other stuff is that we have lost sight that we can't just do anything. That there is a type of worship and an attitude in worship that God is looking for those who come to worship. So what were they doing wrong? Well, specifically this. It's with regard to the Lord's table. And he says this, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat, for in eating one, goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This is not good worship. This is not acceptable worship. Folks, that is why we must not only guard the door of our heart, but the doors of the church. Because irreverent behavior can walk right into the the, core of our heart and right into the church if we are not careful. And it's because of this that we read one of the most sobering passages in all the Bible. Are you ready? Strap yourselves in because here we go. Listen to this passage. This is what he says in regards to, to this irreverent worship around the Lord's table. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why, listen to this, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So here's what I want to do for the remainder of this this message. I want to walk us verse by verse through this passage right here. So you ready? We're going to go do it on on a quick clip here. So the Lord's Supper, along with baptism, that's our baptistry over there, is one of two ordinances that God has given to the church. Two things, two sacraments that we are to practice as Christians. Baptism in the Lord's Supper. So whenever we gather around the Lord's table or celebrate baptism and we do it in an unworthy manner, we are put, to put it mildly, we are making a mockery of what happened at Calvary. We are making a mockery of what happened at Calvary. We are showing a reckless disdain for the very thing the bread and the wine in this case represents. That is the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Back to our passage, that's what he's saying here. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. It's an offense to the Lord when we take in an unworthy manner. Just as a believer can dishonor the name of the Lord by taking it in vain, we can act with similar dishonor with regard to the body and blood of Christ when we partake in an unworthy manner. Now, how do we prevent that from happening? Well, the answer is crystal clear. And this is so important, guys. You want to know know the key to always knowing that you're giving God reverent worship? If you ever go, well, how do I know that I'm bringing God reverent worship? This is how. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. This is the key to making sure that you're always bringing God acceptable worship. We always want to be examining our hearts But especially prudent when we gather in corporate worship or gather around the Lord's table, we should examine our hearts. Here's why, and this is why it's so important. This is so important. If we are not careful, we can be guilty of worshiping God with our lips while having hearts that are far from him. And if you want to know the definition of irreverent worship, that's it. It is when we come before the Lord and we go, I'm going to sing your praises and I'm, everyone around me is going to hear that I'm singing in key, and I'm going to look amazing. I'm going to raise my hands and da, 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 da. But my heart's nowhere near this place. and My heart's no, near, nowhere near you, God, either. And while we might be able to fool those around us and even fool ourselves, God will not be mocked and God will not be fooled. He knows when we're bringing reverent worship before him, acceptable praises of sacrifice that are reverent in awe in nature. When we harbor sin in our hearts, but seek to honor God with our lips. Again, that's the definition of irreverent worship. Now, what I'm about to say is incredibly important because you got to get this. It's not that we have to be perfect when we come to worship the Lord. It is that we are repentant when we come to worship the Lord. See, as we examine our lives, as this verse says, And when we examine our lives, we're going to see sin. We're going to go, yeah, I had a bad attitude towards my wife yesterday or my husband, or I'm not forgiving this person at work. We're going to see stuff in there. If you examine your life, you're going to go, yep, it's there. Here's the key. When you see that stuff, don't ignore it, hide it, or try to justify it. Confess it, repent, and forsake of it. Because here's the good news, and this is the gospel. If you're here today, you're watching online, you don't know what it means to be a Christian, here's what it means to be a Christian, is that when you come to God with a repentant heart, guess what? He forgives you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not not that you need to be perfect when you come before the Lord, but you come repentant. And you say, Lord, I want to sing your praises today. God, forgive me. I'm your child. Please forgive me of my sins and accept these praises that roll off my lips. And he will. He'll wash you clean. And that's reverent worship before the Lord. Now, This is where this passage gets even more sobering. So strap yourselves in for what I'm about to say. Because the warning is that if we fail to examine ourselves and come before the Lord in an unworthy manner, we actually pronounce judgment on ourselves. So it says, um, pardon me, let me go back. Uh, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, what does this mean that we speak, we, we bring judgment on ourselves? Well, specifically, it's not a judgment like God's judging a non-believer. It's a judgment for a believer. And a judgment for a believer is always in the form of discipline. So look what it says down here. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are, here's the key, Disciplined. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. So when God judges us that are believers, he's not doing it in a sense to condemn us, but to discipline us. And the reason he disciplines us is because he wants us to grow in godliness. This is exactly what Hebrews is all about. Hebrews chapter 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If God doesn't discipline you, you're not even a Christian. Besides this, we who are believers have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our own good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness for those that have been trained by it. Now, this raises a really important question, okay? So this is where I'm going to make a lot of us uncomfortable. So here we go, you ready? To what lengths will God go to discipline his children? And the reason that I bring this up, let me go back to our passage, is because of this little sentence right here. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. I don't want to have to preach on this stuff, but it's in the Bible. So I I don't know what to do except preach on it. So I'm going to. To what extent does God discipline his children? Well, in the first century, he would allow people to experience illness and even death as a form of discipline. It's not that when they died that they went to hell. He, He was taking them home. But sometimes it's discipline. The discipline is you're coming home. We see this with Ananias and Sapphira. When they were disciplined, they died on the spot for lying to the Holy Spirit. I think they were absolutely believers in God. The discipline was them calling them home. Hey, you've lied and I'm going to make an example of you, but you're coming home. Now that raises this question. The question is this, does God still discipline his children to this extent to this day? Does God still discipline by using illness and even death today? It's an interesting question. Now what I'm about to say, if you think I'm wrong, you can go ahead and push back. Just push back on, in your car on the way home, don't. <laughs> I don't see anything in scripture to indicate that God cannot still discipline his children this way, even to today. Now, do I think it's the norm? No. Do I think it's a rare exception? I think it, I think it is, but I think it's still possible. Now, what I'm about to say is complete, completely anecdotal, but I have talked to Christians. I even talked to a Christian after the last service, but I have talked to Christians over the years who have recounted stories of divisive, dis- disobedient believers dying in very unusual circumstances. And I had somebody after the first, second service come to me and he said, I, I can account for that, I saw that. And you can take that for whatever you want. We ultimately don't know if somebody dies if they were being disciplined or it was just God was calling them home, who knows. Um, but the point is this, does God, does, do, do, does the attitude that we come before the Lord in worship matter to him? You bet it does. You bet it does. And it's something that I think has been lost on the Protestant church in the last 30 years. Here, especially in America, God takes that seriously. That is why I've said this, guys. If you're ever wanting to know, am I bringing God reverent worship? It's always the heart that matters. You know, I get people, you know, we have first time visitors that come all the time. And when I I visit other churches, you know, the first thing I wonder about, how do they dress? Because I want to dress appropriately, right? And so we get fixated on external things because if I'm dressed right, that means I'm reverent, right? Not necessarily because I can dress to the nines and have a heart that's far from God. Reverence is always in the heart. It starts with the heart. It's always a heart issue. I tell people it doesn't matter if, if what you're concerned about is what you're gonna wear to church, what should be concerned, concerning to you is, is are you dressing up your heart to come before the Lord? In other words, are you coming before him with a repentant heart? That's what he wants. It's the state of your heart, not the state of your clothes that matters to God. If you wanna bring him acceptable, reverent worship, come before him with a repentant heart. That's the key. Do you have to be perfect when you come to him? No, nobody is. That's why I say. When you come before the Lord, you don't have to be perfect. But if you are repentant, that's what he desires. We don't try to hide, deny, or justify our sin. We humbly confess it, repent, and forsake it. Now, here's the key. Sin is perhaps, and I shouldn't even say it that way, sin is absolutely the number one hindrance to acceptable worship before the Lord. See, Many of us, when I say, well, what is acceptable worship before the Lord? We think of the external things. Well, you know, we, wanna, we don't want a fog machine in our church, or we don't want this, that, or the other thing. If we're having that debate, we're on the wrong level. We want to go to the heart. When there's the number one killer, the number one reason we will not, will not bring reverent worship before the Lord is because of sin. How do I know that? Because the Bible says as much. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. This is what David said. The writer of Proverbs said this, if one turns away his ear from the hearing of the law, in other words, if I shun the word of God and I just say I don't want anything to do with it, even his prayer is an abomination. There are many Christians, people who are Christians or call themselves Christians who are, they know what God's word says, but they just deny it. They're like, I'm gonna ignore it. I'm gonna gonna do what I want in this area of my life and I don't care what that says. If you think that you're bringing reverent worship to the Lord and you're living in sin, you're not. Okay, that's just the reality of it. Reverent worship starts with a repentant heart. Not a perfect heart, but a repentant heart. Acceptable worship, if you get nothing from my message, just take this. Acceptable worship is repentant worship. Acceptable worship is repentant worship. When David was guilty of committing adultery, not only adultery, but murder, what was his prayer in Psalm 51? You know what his prayer was? His prayer was very simple. Created me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. That was his prayer. God, make my heart right because that's what you want. You know what he wrote right after this? In verses 15 and 16, 16 and 17, he says this, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. God, do you want 10,000 animals and sacrifice? God doesn't need your money, guys. He doesn't need your sacrifices. He doesn't need your animals or any of these things. Will you be pleased with burnt offerings? No, the sacrifices of God, here's the key are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Now you see those last couple of words, you will not despise? It means that when we come before the Lord to worship him with a contrite broken heart, that's worship he'll never turn away from. It is worship he will always receive. Amen? And here's the deal. When you come with a broken and contrite heart, then the message is you're forgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to be perfect when you come before the Lord, but if you come repentant, you can always be certain the worship I am bringing before you, God, be it ever imperfect as it is and ever imperfect as I am, I come before you, God, with a repentant, contrite heart. Lord, have mercy on me, and he does. And so whatever flows from your heart and from your tongue in that moment is acceptable to him. He doesn't need your money, like I said, you know, he doesn't need your money. A lot of us think, well, I came to church and I gave an offering and I volunteered in the nursery. Therefore, that's acceptable worship before the Lord. Is it? Well, I went to church and I had the right clothes on. That's acceptable worship before the Lord. Is it? No, it's not. Well, I presented fire before the Lord. Who cares where the fire came from? I presented fire before the Lord. He'll accept that. No, he won't. Well, I'll be like Cain, I'll bring, I'll bring a certain offering before the Lord. And it's, a, it's an offering, isn't it? God accepts every offering. No, he doesn't. And that is the danger. The danger is is that we we think that anything I bring before the Lord is acceptable. But the other danger is that we get focused on the external things and we don't focus on what really matters. And that is the state of our heart. See, the pressing question today, and I'm going to finish with this, are you offering God acceptable worship with awe and reverence? Or are you honoring him with your lips, with a heart that's far from him? Let today, if that's the case, let today be the day that you make things right by humbling your heart, confessing your sin and saying, God, I want to be right before you. And the good news is he forgives you. He loves you. He washes you clean and he accepts you. Amen.
5: Needs to win Let us pray Let us pray
2: like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering through prayer and through donations, please call us at 602 602- Eight six six eight nine nine
0: nine. following program is called Equipping the Saints.
6: Hello, heart and soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. And did not, and it's, the, the subject is God, by the way, now the Greek word has that subject inherent, he, and he... "...did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly." Chapter 2 of 2 Peter, verse 5. Here we see that God did not spare the ancient world. And notice how they're described in the end of the verse. World of the ungodly. You can read through Genesis 6. You may or may not know the true story, but when God was finally fed up with the wickedness of man on earth, that the intent of their heart was continually evil, he was sorry that he made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart and said he would blot them out. But Noah found favor or grace. Noah found grace, favor with God. So God was patient and commanded noah to build an ark and over 120 years he did so obediently and then the flood judgment came upon the earth and everyone other than noah his wife his three sons and their wives perished in the flood waters everyone besides these eight persons god hates sin and he will judge and we think because we get away with it he's not going to judge we think because people get away with it he's not going to judge he has given examples already that He knows how to and still knows how to, as we're going to see. Peter speaks of this later on in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, though through which the world, speaking of water, was at one time destroyed, being flooded with water. Mankind was eating and drinking and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. Luke 17, 27. Verse 5 in 2 Peter 2. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. He didn't spare the ungodly in their sins, those who would not repent. By the way, Noah preached righteousness for 120 years. They had a chance to respond to the truth, and they did not. They were ungodly. They died in their sins. They were unrighteous. Noah preached righteousness. You see, you need righteousness to be into heaven. You are unrighteous. We are all unrighteous. But God provides righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous, if we're willing to trust Him. Notice in contrast, although He didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Interesting wording here we're going to see. Because Noah is an example of an obedient believer. Noah was obedient. He suffered. No converts. He suffered. But he was obedient. He was preserved from the flood judgment. It means guarded, watched over. Later on, we're going to see Lot was delivered. He was snatched out. But Noah was preserved. Noah was preserved. A preacher of righteousness who found grace through faith in the seed of Eve who would come and bring forgiveness of sins, Jesus Christ. Noah did all the Lord commanded, and in his obedience, God used the very ark that he built to save him as a picture of what Christ does for us. When you believe in Jesus Christ, we are saved from the judgment that will come for sin. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Turn to Hebrews 11:7. 7. Hebrews 11:7. 7. By faith... Noah, being warned by God about the things yet not seen. He was warned about judgment, by the way. And if you're not a believer, I'm warning you about judgment. Warned by God about the things not seen yet in reverence. That's in fear. In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah is an example of obedient faith, a preacher of righteousness built the ark for 120 years, and God brought about then the destruction upon the entire earth, but preserved Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. God guarded over him. He protected Noah from his judgment. So we have another example. If God would put angels in immediate punishment for their ultimate judgment, if God would destroy the whole world of the ungodly, bring about a worldwide flood because of their sin, But preserve Noah. If he would do that, then, verse 9, the Lord knows. And we're going to see in a minute, this word knows speaks of having known already, but it still affects you now. The Lord already knows how to do it, and He still knows. Still knows how to rescue the godly from temptation or trials, as we're going to see, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Especially those, and that's going to speak of, the false teachers. He's going to describe them in two ways, which will be the rest of the chapter. So the point is, based on God's previous actions concerning sin, worldwide flood, preserving Noah, we must recognize the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, but to keep the unrighteous under punishment. The Lord knows how to do it. They're not getting away with anything. Their judgment is not idle. It's not idle. And then notice we have a third example. Verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. Remember Lot, Abraham's nephew, were, see, he's a believer here. Lot made systematic compromises to follow what he desired by what he looked at. And he found himself in a place where he benefited, worldly speaking, he was sitting at the gates. But internally, because he was a believer, he was tormented. And God had to deliver him out of that area. Remember what happened in Genesis 19, where two angels doing the Lord's bidding came to Sodom and met Lot. And they wanted to sleep in the square. And I'm not going to read, you can read Genesis 19 later. And Lot said, no, come to my house. Because he knew what the people there were like. Obviously, they were tormenting his soul or their actions, right? He knew what they were like. And then the wicked men and evil men of Sodom tried to bash down the door to get at those angels to get strange flesh, as we saw in Jude. And then these wicked men wearied themselves, being blinded even to get to them. Then actually, turn to Genesis 19. Turn to, We're going to look at verse 12. And by the way, if you read back in Genesis 18, Abraham was interceding for Lot. God had made it clear he was going to destroy Sodom, and Abraham was interceding for him. And God answers this prayer, by the way. Genesis chapter 19, verse 12. Then the man said to Lot, these men, they actually it says earlier that they're angels, but they're in the form of men. Okay. Then the man said to Lot, whom else do you have here? A son-in-law and your sons and a, your daughters and whoever you have in the city. Bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord, the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Their sin is so bad. God has sent these angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot went out to speak to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. And he said, up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to the sons-in-law to be jesting. Verse 15. And when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Now, by the way, notice there's such a difference with Noah's family. They all got delivered, right? Lot's family had some issues that we're going to see, especially his wife. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they had brought him outside that one said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you, and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. And you can read what happens next, but go down to verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife, that's speaking of Lot's wife, from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascending like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Back in our passage, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, reducing them to ashes. He destroyed them and the people, reducing it to ashes. Having made them an example for those who would live ungodly thereafter. Guess what? The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of God that if you do not have your sins forgiven, your lot is the same. An example for those who would live ungodly thereafter. God's direct judgment upon those cities. God condemned them to destruction, reducing them to ashes. You see, guess what? If you don't have your sins forgiven as evidenced by the fact you are living in an ungodly life, your fate is the same. It's judgment. God has made them an example for all who would live ungodly thereafter. That's you if you have not been saved. You may think God's judgment's not coming, but he's already proved that it has come. It's already come in certain situations as an evidence that He will judge. God hates sin. He will judge sin. And He judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but yet He rescued Lot. And notice the character of Lot and the insides of Lot is described here. Again, verse 7, and if He rescued, now this word rescued means delivered. He wasn't preserved like no, He was delivered. Notice what it says. Righteous Lot. Well, I was kind of sinful, I thought. Boy, if I didn't have this passage, i think Lot was not a believer, right? You look at his actions, right? But you see here, righteous Lot, and here's the difference. Oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. And then there's an explanation. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, again, knows a preacher of righteousness, Lot here is a righteous man, while living among them, that was the problem, by the way, felt his righteous, again, righteous soul, tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. You might remember Lot was Abraham's nephew, and Abraham had been interceding for him. Lot was a true believer, as we see here, who made very bad choices. He followed his desires and suffered the consequences for it. But it's very interesting what our passage says, that he was oppressed, oppressed by the sensual conduct of, of unprincipled men. He was oppressed. Now we have again God rescuing him. The difference between Noah and Lot here. But here, Lot is delivered, not preserved. He is dragged out by the angels. And notice this. The term oppressed. The term means worn down. Worn down. He was worn down. By the sensual conduct, the licentiousness, same word, speaks of immorality, of lawless men. For by what he saw and heard, this righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day. That's torture. He was tortured. True believers are never happy in the midst of their sin. His soul was tortured, tortured by their lawless deeds, yet he still was there, right? And God had to drag him out before he destroyed them. There's going to be some believers maybe here or other, they're going to be like that too. You're a believer in Jesus Christ, but yet you've yielded and you are immersed in the world. And you hate what they're doing, but you still like something about it. You're tortured by it, but you're still there. Don't be like Lot. Be like Noah. So here, by what he heard and saw, the righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day. You see, Lot had believed in the seed of Abraham, which would come, Jesus Christ. And you see, unrighteous man, when we believe in righteous Jesus Christ, we receive his righteousness. Lot is righteous, and God delivered him. The point here is God delivers true believers from judgment. God delivers true believers From judgment. No matter where you are on the scale. Now there are consequences to how you live. Some of you might be preserved as you obey God. Some might be snatched out and delivered like Lot. Judgment does come for sin. So then, if he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, when living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day. Now I would say if he didn't feel his soul tormented day after day, maybe he wasn't a believer, but here we see he was. Now, if you can live among sinful men and just not have a conviction at all, I would question whether you're saved or not. Lot was tormented. He was a worldly believer, but he was tormented. Felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Then, that's what God does. He rescues, brings judgment also upon the unrighteous. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires. Folks, we need to know that God has already punished some as examples. Then he does know still how to keep the ungodly under punishment and to rescue the godly. He's going to punish those who are in their sins. If you never repent, you are being kept for judgment. Especially false teachers, especially as we're going to see. They're not getting away with anything. Notice, based on God's past judgment, future deliverance for the righteous and judgment for the unrighteous is assured. Again, verse nine. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of the judgment.